Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Uh, this is going to be the third in a row of the Ask Buck series for the uh, summer here, as the summer is coming to an end. And um, we are still in this COVID pandemic nightmare. I'll have to tell you, I'm getting sick of it. I don't know about you. I'm sure you are. But, you know, what a what a lame summer, right? We couldn't even um, get out and do anything, go out and travel, go out and do all sorts of the summer stuff. But, hey, at least you had this podcast, right? Listen, before we get started with the episode here, I do want to remind you that there is a website called wealthformula.com. That site has a number of resources on it, including access to what is called the Investor Club. The Investor Club is, of course, for accredited investors who are interested in potentially getting off the sideline and participating in real asset investing, the stuff that we talk about really in this uh, in this podcast for the most part. You know, it's interesting. I think that you know, the whole purpose of me starting this podcast some years ago was because I was one of those people who was really inspired by the cash flow quadrant, uh, Robert Kiyosaki. And of course, most people that I know started with Rich Dad, Poor Dad. But my story was that I accidentally got the book at a, at a Mexican airport and had no interest in money or finance or anything. But it was really like the only book except for you know, some Arlington romance novels that I read on the plane on the way back uh, from Mexico. And the next thing you know it, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hooked. And then once I got all these concepts down that I think Robert is absolutely brilliant in, you know, sharing and getting people inspired about, I was like, well, okay, that's great. What's next? And that's where I got kind of, you know, I got confused. I mean, I was already making a lot of money right now, uh, right then as a, as a, you know, high paid professional, but I had no idea how to take those concepts and turn them into real things, real, real life. And so that's really where this podcast is inspired from is my journey on that. And ultimately the answers, and that's where Investor Club really comes in potentially for you. That was the long way of saying that. The other thing I will point out is if you're interested in this kind of, um, you know, Q&A type stuff and you feel like you're learning a lot, you really ought to consider joining the uh, Wealth Formula Network. Uh, that is, you know, it's a course, your roadmap to real wealth. And there's a lot of really smart people on there like Tom Wheelwright, Ken McElroy, etc. However, 
the magic really begins once you get that foundation under your belt. You join the group. You participate in bi-weekly Zoom video calls. By now, everybody knows what Zoom is, but we were doing Zoom before Zoom was a big thing. And we have this Facebook group. Anyway, it's really good. And if, you, if you're really into this stuff, it's worth checking out. You can go to wellformularoadmap.com for that. Okay, so as for this episode again, we will come back right after these messages and get to our final set of questions. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So without further ado, let's get to our first question. You know, and these are, you know, these some of these are from a while back here um, because we had quite a few questions, so they might be a few weeks old. We have a couple of questions here recorded from Srinivas, one of our very active investors. Hi, Buck. Uh, this is Srinivas. Um, I wanted to thank you so very much for your podcast, the guests that you have, and all the work that you put into it. Uh, I also wanted to thank you for the Wealth Formula Network and the uh, excellent investment opportunities that you've presented to myself and uh, others like me. Uh, my question is really more of a comment. Um, obviously, the COVID pandemic has really opened my and a lot of other people's eyes to the risks associated with uh, real estate syndication investing. One of the risks that um, was apparent to me only now is that the limited partner to me really seems at sort of the end of the line. So uh, when the COVID pandemic started and it really affected real estate starting in March, it seemed that most sponsors were really doing everything that they could to not only preserve the wealth uh, and equity of the asset, but also to preserve uh, the income stream for everyone else except for the limited partners. So uh, obviously they were making sure to still be able to pay taxes, to be able to pay the mortgage, uh, but also they were still making sure to still be able to pay the, the workers on the property to pay the uh, operation fees and to pay the asset management fees. But it seems to me that the, the one um, fee or cash, uh, flow that was disrupted and is being held is the 
uh, distributions to the limited partners. A lot of uh, syndicators are sort of holding those distributions to be paid at a later time. And I'm just sort of wondering um, if this is what we can expect sort of going forward. That is, the limited partner investors seem to be the ones putting up the vast majority of the capital. But when any problems arise, they seem to be the ones who are suffering uh, first from a lack of cash flow as opposed to all of the other players in the deal. Just wanted to see what your thoughts were uh, on this. Again, thanks so much for all of your help. Uh, really appreciate it. It's a, it's a good question. It's a probing question. So let's put it into context, okay? So let's start with this idea. Any investment relies on the ability to make a profit after expense. And so in this sense, you are absolutely right. You're going to pay the mortgage. You're going to pay the taxes. Uh, these are very large assets. Uh, there are a large number of employees that need to get paid and managers that need to manage those employees. And so remember the employees uh, and all of the other things are not making money as investors, but rather again, as employees of a business, because every one of these assets is really fundamentally a small business. Uh, you know, in, in our opportunities in specific, you know, the general partners are on the same level as the limited partner in the sense that if distributions are not being made uh, to the limited partners, distributions of cash flow are not being made to the GP either. Now, that brings up another issue that is important to understand. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, just because you are not getting distributions right now, as I know uh, you're not, that doesn't mean that you're not making a profit. You are making a profit, specifically, uh, especially in in the, the opportunities I know that uh, that you're involved with. Think about it this way. If you yourself owned a building by yourself, okay, let's not put it into a syndication context, you'd still be paying a mortgage. Uh, with principal interest, you'd still be paying property taxes, you'd still be paying your property manager and maintenance employees. And then in that case, again, when do you make a, a profit? Well, you only make a profit after all those expenses get paid, right? But, uh, you know, given uh, the financial uncertainty that we're in with the pandemic, and an upcoming election, which is typically very, very uh, uh, disruptive to any economic uh, scenario. Even in the scenario where you had your own building and you were still making some profit right now, uh, and you were getting these checks from the manager uh, into your bank account, your operating bank account, you might be a little bit reluctant to spend that money right away, right? I mean, after all, what if we had a bad month? What if all of a sudden everything went into lockdown again? So wouldn't it be nice to be capitalized and feel like your capital is secure? And I'm guessing the answer is yes, because no one wants to go crazy with you know, spending money that they don't know for sure that they are going to get to keep. So if the money, though, is in the bank, you've already been paid by the property manager, you own the building, uh, is that your money? Yes, it is your money. You're just not spending it. So basically, that is no different with what's happening in the syndication scenario that you're in right now. In most cases, as you know, uh, our 
offerings are are exceeding pro forma, and we're doing quite well. Uh, you and uh, other investors, certainly in in our group, are making money, are making a profit, and you will see that on K ones. Furthermore, your basis of value, in the sense of you know creating equity, continues to go up, meaning that your equity is growing. Your money is still your money, right? The profit is still your profit. It's just in the bank right now, and it's in the bank to you know to help keep your principal as safe as possible. Now think of it as an insurance policy, basically, right? When this COVID thing is clearly under control, you know you're very likely just going to get a big, you know, great big check representing multiple quarters. As I know, you know, your your equity is is, is growing too at the same time. Now, let me give you an example. One of our first uh, group investments was a property in Mesa, Arizona, that uh, we we would we had planned to do our first refi, uh, you know, around twenty four months, which would have been right about now, for about seventy percent return of equity. But right now, refis, uh, well, they're not really. They're very difficult to do, first of all, because of banks are requiring significant principal and interest in escrow because they're kind of bracing for the potential worst too. But if in doing so, you would also end up taking away, you know, capital reserves of the uh, of the asset, which in this situation is really not that smart. R- listen, these are all small businesses and small businesses the most common reason for them to go out of business is to be undercapitalized. So bottom line is, again, you, the investor, are making money. It's just either sitting in a reserve account right now or growing, you know, with the appreciation of the asset or both. By the way, you know, I know, again, you're investing in a number of these things uh through Western Wealth Capital and stuff, I would highly encourage you to look at the basis of value numbers on your reports. Uh, some of these uh, returns are already looking, I mean, absolutely huge after 12 to 18 months. And um, I don't know how closely you look at that, but I, I would encourage you to do that. It's it's a lot more, you know, I, I think the mistake that people are making right now is thinking that if their syndicator is not making distribution, somehow the property is struggling. And that's just not generally the case. In fact, you know, I don't know about other syndicators, but I will say in general, there's not a lot of distress in the system right now. So apartment uh, apartment investors are generally doing pretty well. So hopefully that answers your question. And then let's go to your next one, Srinivas, because I know you had a couple here. Hi, Buck. Uh, this is Srinivas. Uh, I want to thank you uh, so much for all of your advice on the podcast and for the uh, great opportunities to invest through the Wealth Formula Network. My question is a little bit of a technical question that pertains to preferred returns on the uh, waterfall uh, that many syndicators offer. Uh, My question is this, um, do syndicators often um, also return a portion of the capital that's invested by limiting partners as a way to decrease the amount of distributions that they have to give to limited partners based upon this distribution waterfall. So, uh, for example, keeping the numbers easy, let's say that um, the uh, syndicators raise an investment and 
uh, limited partner contributes $100,000. And then let's say uh, after year one, the syndicator returns $10,000 of that initial investment. That is at the start, they raised more than what was actually needed. And then let's also say that there was a uh, 10% uh, preferred return as a part of the uh, distribution waterfall. So um, after the first year, based on an initial $100,000 investment, the investor would expect to get uh, $10,000 in that year. But then in the second year, based upon a, a 10% distribution waterfall, because 10% of the cap of the initial $100,000 capital was, was returned in addition to the 10% return, the investor investment is only $90,000. So in the second year, by a 10% preferred return, the investor would only get $9,000. Um, sorry for this long explanation, but I've heard that this is a way that some uh, syndicators can kind of dupe investors into thinking that their preferred return is based on their initial investment as opposed to their investment throughout the deal. Again, uh, thanks so much for your insights as always and uh, was wondering what you thought of this uh, technical question. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Another uh, another probing question there, uh, Srinivasan. You know, without getting too much into the weeds, you are right. Um, there's a lot of complicated various waterfall structures that can be used um, by general partners to, you know, to make more money and to, um, you know, as you said, to make it seem a little bit deceptive. Um, Here's what I would say. My primary advice here, and as you know, in general, this is kind of what, uh, what what we do in our in our group is that stick to really simple structures where you're getting access to the upside and are aligned with the GP. I think the challenge is when you get into these, you know, waterfalls, these constant shifts. Um, I think you know a lot of those kinds of things that you're talking about um, are possible. They become, you know, they become very um, they, they, it becomes very convoluted. Uh, that's why for me, at least, you know, the way that I have generally tried to look at things and certainly present things sometimes is, uh, in terms of annualized returns, because for me, that's kind of the easiest thing to understand. Sometimes you can really be fooled into thinking that, you know, you're getting something better than you are by the way somebody says it. I mean, somebody says, I'll give you, you know, 25%, you know, cash on cash uh, on your investment. And you're like, wow, that sounds great. 25% cash on cash. But then all of a sudden you realize that the investment only lasted for four years. So, uh, you know, the next thing you know, you've, you've made just your capital back and you've made no money on top of that. Um, that's obviously not, you know, necessarily something that you're, you're seeing, but you're going to see variations of what I'm talking about. People um, in this space, like in any space, they are good at trying to push the buttons on, on what what less sophisticated investors uh, might be looking at. My advice, again, is really to focus on annualized returns because annualized returns typically are going to give you, um, you know, a little bit better of an idea uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what the true return on, an, uh, on a yearly basis is expected to be. Um, 
people get caught up in this preferred return things, uh, which is, in my view, the concept of preferred returns is totally overrated. People get excited about preferred cash flow returns because they think it, they, they, they think that it somehow suggests some kind of guaranteed return, which, uh, which as you know, it really is not. Uh, it's funny, you know, uh, with one of the models that uh, I know you're, you are familiar with, there is no preferred return. Um, and, and, and I get this question from new investors all the time. Well, well why is there no pref? And I say, well, there's no pref because there is no, uh, no money that's, uh, you know, no cash flow or capital gains that are going to the operator until you have 100% of your capital back. And so in that regard, it's not a preferred return, or you can say it's a preferred return that is, um, you know, infinite until you get your money back. But these all preferred returns are, you know, in my in my mind, a little bit uh, misleading too, because in most cases, the preferred return is also uh, incumbent on the, you know, the asset itself actually producing that much cash flow. So at the end of the day, uh, I don't think you know that much about preferred returns. I like to focus on what is the split, uh, what is the alignment between the limited partner and the general partner, uh, and ultimately looking at um, pro formas. Uh, you know, once once you realize, you know, if the pro formas are realistic, trying to get a sense of what an annualized return projection is. Anyway, that's a pretty simplified answer, but. I think the moral of the story is, for me, is simply just to keep it simple. Okay, next question from Tuan. This is a written question. Hi, Buck. I am a high W-2 healthcare provider. I wanted to start investing in buy and hold rental to generate passive income and benefit from tax breaks, but I just found out that I can't use any of the tax benefits to offset my active income. Is it worth it for a busy healthcare provider to start a portfolio of small multifamily or would I be better off investing passively into syndications? Well, uh, let's start with the issue of you not being able to use your losses. Well, unfortunately, you are right there. You cannot write off these wonderful real estate losses against your W-2 income, and that's why People do things like have their you know spouse quit their job and become a real estate professional, so that you know the real estate. Then, when you're filing jointly, some of those uh, some of those losses can actually offset your W two income. Uh, if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to find a new spouse to do that, or whatever it takes to get the real estate professional status, the goal ultimately at that point is to create a robust flow of passive income where you can use those paper losses, right? I mean, that's that's the uh, name of the game. So sometimes the reality is that people have lots of passive income, but they don't even know it. And let me give you an example, okay? A number of our investors, uh, physicians and such, have ancillary income in the form of surgical centers, hospitals, maybe they have uh, dialysis centers, whatever, 
Um, and I'm not talking about a few bucks. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars that their CPAs are not considering passive income for some reason. If you are one of those people who can identify or even create these kinds of robust flows of passive income, then you can use those big losses from real estate, uh, you know, like bonus depreciation, et cetera, uh, to offset those uh, that income. I'm not a CPA, but that's... I'll tell you that's uh, that's what I know. Okay. Now, as for this question of direct versus direct uh, investment versus syndication, it's a slightly different uh, question. It's a very different question, of course. And for most people in our high income cohort, the only reason really to invest directly into real estate, in my opinion, is because a you like being a landlord. And most people realize they don't like being a landlord. They just, they don't like, they like real estate, but they really like what real estate does for them rather than, you know, being a landlord. Or you want to get the real estate professional designation, which you, which we've talked about before. And, uh, you know, for one of the spouses in a marriage, for example, and then you can potentially uh, use those passive losses, get applied to your W-2 income. I mean, that is, you know, that's sort of the holy grail. Uh, if you can do that. Now, if that's not possible, if that's not the goal, my opinion, and again, it's my opinion, is that you're much better off spending your time finding, you know, the right operators to invest with passively, okay? Making material money in real estate, you know, and doing it consistently, doing it well, it takes time, it takes effort. And that that's just a fact. There's no denying that. People sometimes think that they're going to make more money if they buy properties themselves instead of going through syndications. And in my experience, that generally ends up not being the case, um, you know, for a number of reasons. I mean, not not uh, excluding the fact that people don't often have the expertise or time to do it. But if you look at, like, you know, my personal investments that I have as a passive, I mean, I'm consistently yielding well over 20% annualized. I'm not talking about anything that I'm doing. I'm talking about my limited partnership investments that I have in my portfolio. So I'm consistently yielding 20% annualized or better. Now, most people can't do that well on their own because, they, again, they don't have the expertise to optimize the profit, profitability of the asset. And even if they do pretty well, they often find themselves putting a lot of time and effort into these properties, which you may or may not like doing. Now, with regard to time and effort, remember, your time is actually worth something as well, especially if you're a high-paid professional. And if you're spending 10 hours per month, even on real estate, um, the cost of your time has to be factored into that ROI. So, you know, bottom line is, you know, if you are uh, one of those, individuals who whose hourly is like $400 an hour. Well, if you're spending 10 hours a week on real estate, you better, you know, you have to make $4,000 a month more uh, from your active activity uh, compared to what you would make as a uh, passive to make it actually make, make sense. Right? So bottom line is for most people choosing the, the right syndication or group or operator, might be a better option, uh, you know, especially if you're a busy person. And that's, of course, you know, I'll put a shameless plug in again there for our investor club uh, network. 
uh, investor club, which you can sign up for at uh, wealthformula.com if you are accredited. Next question is from Cindy. Hi, Buck. I have a simple question. I've often heard that rich people don't gamble their money in stock markets since they have other investment tools that offer higher returns at less risk. However, I also heard in the news that all this stock rally this year only benefits the rich since the poor do not own stocks. These two sentences sound contradictory. So are we talking about two different groups of rich people here? Well, thanks. I love listening to your podcast as always and learn from them. Well, thank you, uh, Cindy. Well, listen, I think the quote about rich people not investing in the stock market is, uh, first of all, it's not true. And who are rich people anyway? Are we talking about you know people who make a million dollars a year? Is that rich people? That's not what the people who are making 10 or uh, you know $20 million a year are worth $100 million. They don't think of the 500000 to a $1 million people as, as rich people. Um, but, you know, listen, I think the point is that they're, um, you know, when, when you're talking about wealthy people in general, um, the, I think the idea is not that they don't own stocks. I think the point is that their entire portfolio is not sitting in a bunch of mutual funds with huge fees inside of an IRA. You know, the wealthier people generally, uh, you know, they, they obviously do have significant stock portfolios. But also remember uh, that they are usually people with, you know, pretty, uh, you know, d- with a lot of direct investments as well. So a number of real, real asset investments or, or um, you know, you see a lot in wealthy people. You see these products, these uh, life insurance products uh, like Wealth Formula Banking or Velocity Plus type things, which you can check out at WealthFormulaBanking.com. Um you know, listen, while most everyone I know who is wealthy owns a substantial amount of real estate, I would not say that they do not own stocks as well. So I think that's the bottom line. Personally, you know, I like the idea of owning equities if there are guardrails similar to the ones you see in something like Velocity Plus, which again is that you can see a webinar on that at wealth, uh, wealthformulabanking.com. And something that, a- that actually allows you to take the upside uh, and leverage it but allows you to skip, uh, you know, a year that actually goes negative. I mean, those kinds of products are used by the wealthy all of the time. Um, and they're called, generally speaking, they're called, you know, premium finance, um, IULs or, you know, LIRPs, which are L-I-R-P, uh, life insurance retirement plans. Um, those are things that, you know, the ultra wealthy are really into. Bottom line is, you know, these statements, I think they're too generalized. And, um, you know, it's just that the wealthier you are, generally speaking, the the better you are at, you know, taking or your advisors or whatever it is or, or at, you know, making sure that you maximize your profits and mitigating your losses. Well, that's quite a few questions here. So I am going to take a quick break and we'll finish up when we come back. Okay, welcome back, everyone. The next question here is from Anish. Anish asks, hi, Buck. I'm a soon-to-be PGY2 resident physician. In other words, that means he's in his uh, almost in his second year. Uh, in recent months, I've been getting into personal finance and ideas for financial independence. I came across your podcast. I've enjoyed listening to it. Just wanted to get your take as a resident with nominal income and time at hand. Are there things you think I could or should be doing aside from maybe a Roth IRA over the next few 
years to lay the foundation for building this wealth and getting to that next step. Okay, well, listen, Anish, a uh, good question. And I will just say something that goes against the grain of all of these, um, probably all these other, you know, physician bloggers and stuff like that. Honestly, as a second year resident, I personally don't think it makes any difference what you do right now. Residency is weird. You get paid pretty much nothing for a few years and suddenly get a huge raise. And if I were you, I'd spend all of your resources right now on education, financial education, and and trying to understand how you can position yourself when you do have the money when it starts coming in. I think the idea of you know, uh, you know, trying to do too much with as little as you have in terms of time and money, um, it, it might just be a waste of time. You know, I, I'll, I'll, that's my honest opinion on that. But again, it's just my opinion. Um, one thing though, I will say that. Um, that I would consider if I could go back and doing it, it sort of depends on where you live and stuff. If you really want to get started on something in real estate and the market seems like, you know, that it's possible for you to do, you could look at one of these FHA loans uh, where they have you put down 3% and uh, specifically to buy um, a multifamily, you know, like a four unit or three unit building. Uh, it's up to four units residential. So what's cool about that is that's actually something where you don't need a lot of cash to put down. And it's something that you might be able to do with your limited income and then build equity while letting the other tenants uh, pay for your rent. So that's like the one thing I think if I was going back, I would be thinking about, um, you know, retirement accounts, et cetera. I think that's fine. I mean, you know, what, what money you're going to put in a Roth right now, Five grand a year. How far is that going to go? Is it going to be meaningful? I mean, I, I, I know. I guess, I guess it would. I just don't think it's that something I would spend too much time thinking about. Anyway, okay. So next question: What are your operators? Uh, of course, talking about the uh, different partnerships we have in Investor Club. He, he says, "What are your plans or strategies if no more COVID payments are made?" From the government to tenants. So we're talking about apartments, obviously. Well, first, I think it's, uh, Mike, it's extremely unlikely that the government stopped paying tenants because, you know, essentially that would mean they're like eliminating unemployment, which isn't going to happen. Also, remember, we are in working class apartments. So, you know, generally speaking, we're in areas that the cost of living index is not very high. So their rent is not that high for how much money they make, even if they're on unemployment. And then the next major issue there is that the majority of our tenants currently are not unemployed. Uh, so I And I don't see unemployment getting worse at this point either. However, to answer your question about, well, what are your strategies? I mean, what are you going to do to make sure or to, to mitigate the, the risk? The biggest thing we're doing uh, is being well capitalized. So that, again, that goes back to Srinivas's questions about, well, you know, why aren't, you know, why are we not getting paid or, you know, we're whatever. It, it, listen, we're just staying capitalized so that we can weather the storm. There's just money sitting in the bank account. Um, it doesn't guarantee that we're going to be fine. Nothing's guaranteed in life. Your stocks aren't guaranteed. That's for sure. However, there are thousands of owners of these kinds of apartment buildings who I can pretty much guarantee you would lose their properties before 
our partnerships and our and our operators. And the reason for that is capitalization. We are very, very well capitalized. And, you know, as for this idea of, you know, all of these buildings getting foreclosed on, et cetera, and taken back, I just don't see Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac letting that happen. They don't want that. They're not in the business of taking back apartments. That would be an absolute disaster for them and for the economy. And so if a scenario like that happened, I truly believe we'd see a huge bailout of some kind for our industry. But listen, um, the best we can do is what we're doing right now. And you'll be happy to know that we're actually doing really, really well in our portfolio right now is performing at you know pre-COVID levels or better. So you know, listen, we just need to keep staying ahead of the curve. And as long as we do that, I, I truly believe we're going to be just fine. The next question is from Christian Schultz. Okay, so Christian asks, uh, Buck, perhaps this is one that can be raised on a webinar, but Western Wealth Capital relies heavily on upfront depreciation, raising the cap rate through improvements and then refinancing of the resale. What are the implications to this model if Biden wins the White House and Democrats take the Senate as well? Is there any indication that they would do away with depreciation allowances or change the tax laws surrounding multifamily real estate? If the ability to take maximal depreciation up front were done away with, the market for multifamily real estate could dry up. Thoughts? No, I, I don't think so, actually, at all. Uh, for one thing, remember that idea of, you know, um, the market, uh, you know, the, the ability to take that maximal depreciation up front is only like two years old. We, I mean, so that's that I don't see any indication of that drying up at all. Um, you know, listen, so the only real change that sounds like from from my understanding of the Biden laws in terms of us really relate to people who are you know, own real estate. Uh, there's challenges to potentially to 1031s, et cetera. Um, I don't think it would affect us um, because uh, it sounds like what, what it would affect is mostly the elimination of bonus depreciation with cost segregation analysis, which is set uh, to sunset anyway in, in 2022. Um, so let's just review that real quick because, you know, most people don't you know, a lot of people may not even know what a cost segregation analysis is, but a cost segregation analysis is basically an engineering study done by, um, you know, an investor to segregate the property into what is considered real property, which is like, you know, the land and this, the big old building that you got there versus chattel or personal property, which is like stuff you can pull out of it, cabinets or, you know, whatever, washer dryers, et cetera. Real property is depreciated over 27 and a half years. So that's mostly, if you do nothing, if you do no, you don't do a cost segregation analysis in apartments, it's going to be 27 and a half years straight line. But if you do a cost segregation analysis, the personal property part can be depreciated over five years. And that is the exciting thing because in apartments, it ends up being sometimes that about 30% I've noticed on average of uh, apartment buildings end up being considered, uh, the, the acquisition price considered uh, chattel or personal property. So you could depreciate that over five years. And that has been the rule of the land for, for years and years and years. 
Um, and it's been a great tax advantage to real estate investors for a very, very long time. And to be clear, there is nothing in the Biden plan uh, that suggests any challenge to these elements of the tax code. Now, bonus depreciation use with cost segregation analysis was, as I mentioned, this was new. I mean, this started with Trump with the tax code that allowed you to take that five years that I just mentioned of accelerated depreciation and hyper accelerate it into all into the first year. So if you were um, either a real estate professional or have a lot of passive income, like we talked about, maybe you have a surgery center or whatever, that was a huge, huge advantage. And it is a huge, huge advantage. And it will be until it's not anymore. So take advantage of it if, if you can. But, you know, the reality is for most people uh, investing passively, it's not going to make much of a difference either, though. You know, so bottom line is I don't think limited partner investors have much to worry about, frankly. Um, but I will say if you're benefiting from bonus depreciation, ride that baby as long as you can. All right. Last question here. And it's from Cindy. She says, we are all familiar with Robert Kiyosaki's famous saying, your house is not an asset. And from a financial perspective, I totally agree, especially since I live in a state where housing is expensive. However, renting has its own limitations. For example, we can't design the house we want, tiles, paint, etc. We also can't dictate how long we want to stay in the house if the landlord decides to sell a home. While renting may be easy for young folks with no kids, those of us with kids might find the Potential instability, quite a bit of downside. So what's your view on taking out as much um, HELOC, uh, home equity line of credit, on the primary residence as we can to invest in opportunities that generate a higher return than the interest that we need to pay the bank? It's not perfect since most banks would only allow a certain percentage of the loan to value, but would that be a good compromise to this question? So there's no real you know, perfect answer here, right? There's two ways I, I would uh, look at this question and then I, I'll leave it to yourself uh, to to determine what you think. But first, there's the question, if you look at it purely from the math, and the, the math answer is quite simple, right? Uh, if you can get returns higher than the interest you're paying on your HELOC, then the math is easy and you should maximize that home equity line of credit to the hilt, right? And invest it. You should do that if if it's purely a mathematical question. Um, also, in benefit of that you know, argument of doing that, remember, equity in your home is really just dead money. It's not doing anything. And it's also a big target for creditors. And uh, you know, mortgages and HELOCs are, uh, if you think of it that way, are potentially the best asset protection you can have on your house. And finally, the final thing in favor of doing the HELOC, maximizing leveraging of the hilt, is that the truth of the matter is that the banks are far less likely to foreclose on a home with no equity. So they might be willing to work with you more if you, you know, stripped out all the equity from your home, got yourself in trouble. Again, that's the math side of this. But at the end of the day, when it's your personal residence, there is a psychological element to this as well which I understand and appreciate, you know, there is something to me, uh, well, and to a lot of people that is psychological about not having to worry about paying a lot of money to stay in your home. So bottom line is, I think 
I don't think there is a black and white answer here. And as long as you know the specific issues, you need to do what you need to do to feel feel like you can sleep at night. Now, one uh, last compromise that I've heard, uh, particularly in Wealth Formula Network, which I think is really, really smart, is, okay, maybe you don't keep a lot of equity in your home, but you're keeping uh, you know, you're keeping an equivalent amount of equity in uh, some other, you know, in some other place where you can access it. So, for example, maybe you've taken a hundred thousand dollars of equity out of your home, but you have a hundred thousand dollars accessible to you in a wealth formula banking policy that's throwing off five and a half percent compounding. Now, the advantage in a situation like that is, well. When can you not access your home equity line of credit? Well, unfortunately, usually it's when you really, really need it, right? So if your credit is gone or all of a sudden you lose your job, that's when you're not going to be able to you know, get a home equity line of credit. So some people that I've talked to have said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to strip out the equity, put that equity into something like a wealth formula banking policy where it can, you know, where it's better for me to keep it. And I know that banks won't lock me out of their system when times get tough. Anyway, that's something to consider. We're going to wrap it up here. Uh, We've been going for a while and that actually wraps up three sessions of Ask Buck. And I hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you like this kind of stuff, join us at Wealth Formula Network. Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.